This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We're in the midst of Season 8. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's the Dun Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and he's also a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. I'm also joined by Heidi Schlumpf, who's executive editor of National Catholic Reporter. I want to say welcome to both of you. Welcome, Heidi. Welcome, Dan. How are you all doing today? Good morning, David. Good morning, Dan. It's great to see you on this beautiful spring day in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, David, Heidi, good to be with you as always. Yeah, it's really nice today. And it was nice. It was extraordinarily nice yesterday. We we're not worthy that the sun should enter under our roof. Every couple of weeks, we get together and bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Dan, what have you been up to this week? It's been uh, quite an adventure this week. We're actually at CTU coming close to the end of our spring semester. We started right after the new year. So we're, I think, heading into week 12, give or take. And final exams are coming up and that sort of thing. Easter is coming up. So it's a traffic jam of calendar scheduling. But it's also the great madness of March. Regular listeners over the years will know I am a fan of college basketball and very excited about my alma mater, St. Bonaventure University that they won the regular season championship for the Atlantic 10 Conference and then went on to win the tournament uh, championship. They were the number one seed going into it, and they were the first number one seed to win in something like 10 years. So they got an auto automatic bid to the big dance. And everything, is, as listeners may know, is taking place this year in and around Indianapolis, Indiana, which is the headquarters of the NCAA. And it, they've created a bubble, a strict sort of protocol for the teams in this pandemic era, very restricted attendance in terms of fans and that kind of thing, very unusual. But as a, a trustee of, of the university, I was able to, I was offered a ticket or two tickets, I should say, I could bring one guest. And since it was just about three and a half hours from Chicago, my brother, who is also fully vaccinated, he's a teacher in, in New York State, was able to come and join me. He's a Bonaventure alum as well. And we were there for the, for the game on Saturday. Sadly, we lost to uh, LSU, Louisiana State University, and uh, so now I'm switching my allegiances over to the Ramblers. David, your current employer, go Ramblers, go Loyola University of Chicago. Yeah. I'm getting into basketball again. I've been out of the loop because of COVID and everything like that, but it, it is nice to see the Ramblers again going ahead, and I'm looking forward at some point in the future to when we can all be back in person. I'd love to take my family and support Loyola basketball and all of that, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. Heidi, how have you been? I'm great. I'm enjoying the spring weather. It's amazing what it can do to lift your spirits. And while I'm not a Loyola alum, I'm a big supporter of the university as a Chicago North Sider. And um, I'm not a huge basketball fan. Football is more my game. But I was watching that game and then the Wisconsin game afterwards yesterday. And pretty exciting for Loyola and for Sister Jean, who was able to go and watch. They cut, The camera people kept cutting to her. So that was exciting. So I'm going to adopt them as my team for the rest of the bracket as well. 
As long as Syracuse doesn't make it past the Sweet 16, that's all I care about. I'm going to get a lot of haters from New York State. But growing up in central New York in the shadow of Syracuse University, Coach Jim Beheim haunting uh, the world for many decades now, they always seem, regardless of how terrible their season is, the NCAA selection committee always gets them in somehow. And th- that was very upsetting to us, Bonnies, in 2016, when they had a far worse record and yet got the last four in while the Bonnies were the first four out. It was, we'll never forget that. But we had our triumph in 2018 when we beat them in the Carrier Dome. Back before they were the powerhouse part of the ACC, everything that they are now, they were part of the New York State great basketball team rivalry between St. Bonaventure, still, I believe, the smallest university to ever make it to the Final Four with Bob Lanier, NBA uh, Hall of Famer. And and Beheim refused to play Bonaventure at home in Olean because, well, he's a scaredy cat. And I hope he enjoys. Maybe this is his last dance. It's time for his retirement. Okay, that was a little bit inside <laughs> basketball. <laughs> now that I've aired my grievances with this March Madness Festivus, David, what else is going on with you? I'm just going to say folks that have known me for a long time are going to find it really strange that I care about sports at all. But Chicago has really grown on me. In particular, now I care about baseball, go Sox, and I'm caring about some basketball, go Ramblers. This is a weird look for me, but I'm glad to have something now to actually talk to people about because I oftentimes have not been able to keep up in those conversations. <laughs> we, we, all, we, need, we need distractions as COVID is winding down. Yeah, but otherwise, my family is trying to get out a little bit and enjoy a good socially distanced spring set of activities. We've been pretty good here around the house. We had a, we've mentioned this before, we have family meetings in our house. And so over the weekend, we had another family meeting to talk about some of the ways that we're communicating with one another and coming up with some ways to ease some of the frictions. And so I know that's a practice that you and your Franciscan brothers undertake as well, Dan, but that's been the main thing in our house. In another basketball analogy, making sure that nobody's throwing elbows. Heidi, what's been going on with you? Well, our family was able to get out and do some walks and enjoy the nice weather. We're already talking about how soon is too soon to put up our outdoor pool again. We're making some plans for summer vacations. We're not a fully vaccinated family yet, but my husband has was able to finally get his first shot. He had to drive all the way to Springfield to do it. Um, oh, my gosh. And Springfield, Illinois? A, yep. And as a journalist, I'm 1C in Illinois. So I'm going to be eligible in, in about a week or so, and I'll start the hunt for a appointment. So I don't know, things are looking looking promising. Feels like spring, and I'm starting to think about Holy Week and Easter and what that's going to look like this year. We'll see. And we know that listeners are also in these kind of binds where they're trying to think about their health and balancing that against things like going outside and also things like the upcoming religious seasons that are happening. And so you're on our minds as we're having this conversation this morning. And speaking of conversations, today we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the recent document from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith having to do with LGBTQ blessings. We're going to be talking about the recent shootings in Atlanta, and we're going to be talking about Governor Cuomo. So that is still ahead. Please do stick around. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, I get together with David Dolt and Heidi Schlump to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last Monday, the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith released a decree instructing Catholic priests not to offer blessings for same-sex couples because God, quote, does not and cannot bless sin, end quote. The document from the doctrinal office noted that such unions can have some, quote, positive elements and went out of its way to say that the blessings ban was not intended to be, quote, a form of unjust discrimination, end quote. Yet it stated that it is not licit to impart a blessing on relationships or partnerships even stable that involve sexual activity outside of marriage, end quote. Why did this decree come out now? It was a response to a question posed to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, often referred to as the CDF. The question that was asked was, does the church have the power to give the blessing to unions of persons of the same sex? The answer in a word, no. The question likely came because bishops in Germany who are undergoing a two-year synodal process and who asked the question had floated the idea of offering blessings to LGBTQ couples since the church does not allow them to marry. 
The response to the decree in the U.S. has been mixed, with more conservative Catholics grateful for the reaffirmation of longstanding church teaching, but the more than 60% of U.S. Catholics who support the legalization of gay marriage reacted with disappointment or anger. Heidi, the editorial from the National Catholic Reporter said the decree, which was approved by Pope Francis, risks making him into a hypocrite. How so? Thanks, Dan, for that question. Yeah, our editorial, which ran towards the end of the week last week, has gotten a lot of reaction. I will say that what I was hearing from people, both on social media and who I was speaking to, was that there was a confusion and this feeling of whiplash. So many people had come to see Pope Francis as different and having this openness and this uh, way towards all people, but especially LGBT couples. You can cite a number of things from early on when he said, who am I to judge when he was asked about a gay person to him telling Juan Carlos Cruz when he met with him, the survivor of sex abuse from Chile, it doesn't matter that you're gay or and God made you that way and he loves you the way you are. I think it was very painful for LGBT people who already feel excluded from the church because they can't have a sacramental marriage or wedding ceremony in the church. And now this idea that maybe a blessing would be at least some way that the church could see those positive elements in their relationships, that even that was not allowed. There has been some reporting. I know America reported that there's a possibility that this was rushed past the Pope and maybe he didn't fully agree with what was being promulgated. But I think that hasn't been confirmed yet. And while there's a difference between being pastoral on the one hand and open and what you say to people and changing a, a church teaching, uh, that's what I tried to explain when I was doing some outside media around this hullabaloo last week, it's still extremely painful and frustrating for not just LGBT people, but the people who love them and care about them and the majority of Catholics in the U.S. who wish the church could be more open. What did you guys think? Well, I think I generally agree. I have to question the necessity of this. I think there are a couple different layers. None of this is especially new given the kinds of reporting that has been done and the sort of commentary that's been provided. But I tend to agree with a few things. One is the language was completely inappropriate on the part of the CDF. So regardless of whether or not the decision was going to be for or against approving a blessing of same-sex couples in some kind of ritual or prayer service or something of the sort, the, the way this language of conflating sin with the couple, with people, the, the whole thing is, first of all, it's theologically untenable. It's very murky and it doesn't bring the clarity that is necessary for such a very, I think, offensive statement. The other thing I think that's important to realize is we're talking about, well, let me put it this way. Theologically, the distinction has long stood, and this is something Pope Francis has reiterated, that given the church's understanding of the conditions for sacramental marriage, gay and lesbian couples do not meet that standard. So that fits with the church's understanding of sacramental marriage. But Pope Francis, as recently as last year, was recorded in interviews and has signaled in other ways, both as archbishop in Argentina and then as pope, at least an approval for civil unions, mostly out of civil rights concerns, right? Out of justice and peace, out of protections, out of justice within a society. That distinction, I think, is sufficient, right? The church does not allow for sacramental marriage in this context, yet because of justice issues, because of human rights issues, we should be, as a pro-life church, in favor of the legalization of those protections. So that's the background. The additional thing I would say is the blessing of a couple or the blessing of an individual or the blessing of a community is not necessary. First of all, it's not a sacrament. So this is not equalizing or equating civil unions with the church's sacramental marriage. I think that's the underlying concern here is that the authors of the CDF response are assuming that if a, a gay couple were to go to City Hall and be legally married or enter into a civil union, and then the following weekend ask for a blessing, maybe after mass or something like this, that would be perceived by the faithful as an equation with sacramental marriage, which it certainly isn't. I don't know any rational person who would presume that. The other thing that I find very disturbing, and other people have highlighted this, and I'll leave it here for the moment, which is there is a formal ritual called the Book of Blessings, and it's about 500 pages long, and there are occasions, persons, 
circumstances and objects for which there are rights for blessings. These include the blessings of a new boat, the blessing of a house. In fact, I blessed David and Kira's new home in Chicago a couple years ago. That's in the ritual. We bless non-human animals on the Feast of St. Francis. We bless altars and ambos and candles and chalices and cornerstones of new buildings. And we bless farmland at the harvest time and at planting time. There's a whole range of things, including inanimate objects like buildings. And it's just so dehumanizing to say that one could not bless these two human beings because of this, what I would call homophobic interpretation and a presumption, I think a false one, of a kind of equivocation or, or an equivalency with, with sacramental marriage. Well, and I just want to pick up on that. I was working with my students this week, and we were looking at a passage of Scripture from Mark 5, and it's the woman with the 12-year issue of blood. And what I did with the students was I, I walked them through the Levitical pronouncements about what you do when you have a blood flow and the requirements of being cleansed and the requirements of becoming ritually clean again. And one of the things that I pointed out was the Levitical requirements require that when the blood flow stops, you wait seven days, then you're clean, then you bring your two turtle doves to the temple. And what I pointed out was this woman had never had the blood flow stop. So even though she wanted to participate in the ritual, even though she wanted to become ritually clean again, even though she wanted to return to worship, she was not allowed to because of the rules. And what Jesus does is very publicly say, not only have you been healed, but you don't have to wait seven days because you've already been waiting 12 years, and you're in again. And one of the things that I think is important here is that when Jesus says, your faith has made you whole, I think that what Jesus is talking about is that desire to be part of the worshiping community. And when someone is excluded and is told that the rules don't let them, and yet they still want to come back, that's a sign of even greater faith than someone who's been in the club all along. And so by my lights, when I look at our LGBTQ brothers and sisters who have been told time and again, not only are you not welcome, but you don't even exist, according to church teaching, like your your whole identity isn't even allowed to have a name oftentimes in some of the documents that we've been seeing in some of the public discussions that we've seen, the faithfulness of these Catholics who want to still be part of our faith and want to still be part of this worshiping community, the depth of that is profound to me and moves me and my heart breaks for them because, again, like the Pharisees, we're saying, nope, sorry, rules say you can't be part of this. That's a great connection, David, to that scripture. I will say that increasingly what I'm seeing is that LGBTQ couples are just not staying. And I, I went, I, I know a number of families from my own parish or from the adoption community. And many of them are saying like, this is the last straw. While it's nothing new, the fact that it's promulgated and then you have all the media attention surrounding it just opens all those wounds again. And I saw other Christian denominations using it as a marketing opportunity. I think it was United Church of Christ, you know, come to our church. We'll bless you. We'll even allow you to be marry in our church. And I'm not criticizing that. I think that's maybe a smart thing to do, but it makes the Catholic Church look like the backward, unloving, intolerant place. And I find that difficult. I will just say too, Dan, on your topic of the conflating with sacramental marriage, it is true that some people, and I'm one of them, not only believe that LGBT people's relationships should be able to be blessed and have legal dis anti-discrimination protections, but that there might be something sacramental going on there too in all kinds of relationships that the Vatican doesn't see as sacramental. And I would like to see that someday. And it's just that kind of maybe slippery slope that they're worried about. But I also know that things move slowly and incrementally, and we aren't even able to take this step. It's very difficult. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it's something that hasn't received enough theological attention. It's also, I think some of this is the last 30 years of kind of universal church leadership, beginning with John Paul II, who was really a culture warrior pope. In many ways, he was very inclusive. He, he was an advocate for enculturation of the liturgy. He was an advocate for criticism, not only of communism, but of, of rampant capitalism. He was a critic of capital punishment as much as abortion. In so many ways, he was very inclusive. But he was also somebody 
that certainly today after his death and then certainly after his canonization has become a symbol for culture warrior Catholics, including many U.S. bishops and including some international bishops as well around the world. And I think a consequence of that has been that there hasn't been enough theological reflection. The theologians in the church have not felt comfortable or felt like they've had the space to, to theologize some of these questions. So the groundwork isn't there to even consider what you're proposing, Heidi, which it's not that it's yes or no. It's that there isn't the room for that. In the same way, the reason I bring up JP2 is that he based in effect a silencing over theologians being able to explore the role of women in the church in various ways, including sacramentally. And there's a lot of work that still needs to be done at a theological level. But I also want to point out something, too, that's upsetting, and it follows from this kind of culture warrior emphasis. It's the double standard. And somebody like Father Jim Martin, the Jesuit editor in America and popular author, oftentimes points out is when, for instance, a gay or lesbian employee of a church or Catholic school is fired, that the pretext is always because they are in this sinful relationship. They're in public sin, analogous to this discriminatory language of the CDF document. And the thing that he points out rightly is that they're in no more sin than probably 99% of the rest of the faculty or the staff or of the pastor and the pastoral staff. Let's be honest about it. When we talk about things like stuff that are considered intrinsically evil, which it does not mean more evil. Intrinsic isn't a modifier in that sense. Intrinsic is a qualifier. It means whatever this evil is could never be used to justify something. So torture is intrinsically evil. Abortion, the church teaches, is intrinsically evil. Capital punishment is intrinsically evil and so forth, right? These sorts of things that we we recognize. But you know what else is intrinsically evil, according to church teaching? Masturbation. And so I'm not trying to make light of this, but their concern, as stated in this document, is that the issue is that this couple is having sexual relations outside the context of a sacramental marriage and that is sinful. Well, it's the same thing as masturbation. You know, heterosexual couples who are in sacramental marriages who masturbate, where, where is that discrimination? Or where is, you know, we don't see that. Or divorced and remarried couples who haven't received annulments. That's one that I know that Jim talks a lot about and others do too. He's not advocating by any means, nor is anybody else, that they should also be discriminated against. But to say that, why is it this population? And I think it's deeply entrenched homophobia. And that's something that we have to reckon with. And I think the same thing is true. We see it play out. We've talked a lot on this podcast over the years about how abortion is like the only thing that a lot of Catholics and and certain bishops view everything through. I think LGBTQ discrimination is the same sort of thing. And we have to knock this off. And like you said, Heidi, people are going to continue to leave the church. and, And that itself is a scandal. Forget about the alleged scandal of blessing human beings. Let's talk about the scandal of discrimination and exclusion. And I'll just say one more thing about that. I, I kind of disagree with you about the take of our, some of our other Christian uh, brothers and sisters and other denominations. I kind of felt it was in poor taste. And I know that a lot of LGBTQ Catholics also agreed that they said, you know, this is hashtag too soon, <laughs> something like that. But nevertheless, it, it, there are communities that are much, much more welcoming, and we ought to learn from them. I guess I have a pastoral question that is how can laypersons be a balm in this moment? How can we reach out? In what ways can we even, I mean, because I imagine that listeners are trying to navigate, well, the bishops say this, and therefore am I not even allowed to talk in a kind way to LGBTQ persons? Like, what should the answer be for those that are in that position? Well, I have a proposal, one that I have not seen yet. So you're breaking news here in the Francis Effect podcast. You do not have to be ordained to bless. And that's true when it comes. We talked around Ash Wednesday about the distribution of ashes. We've talked about a number of other contexts, including the Book of Blessings. It makes clear that in in most cases, you do not have to be a priest, a bishop, or a deacon. Now, it's interesting. The CDF's instruction says priests are not allowed to bless same-sex couples. But there's nothing to say that lay Catholics can't do that. So whether that's in perhaps a civil union or some other kind of secular service for this union, the civil union or or same-sex marriage, maybe then the Catholic grandmother or one of the parents or or an uncle or cousin or aunt or something would come up and offer a blessing. That's one pastoral response I think lay people can embrace. The other thing I would say to to clergy is we should not withhold blessings because it's not our blessings. It's God's blessing through which we are simply instruments. God works through us. Well, maybe it's not presented as a blessing of 
this particular union. Maybe it's a blessing of the individual people together. Maybe it's a blessing in another context. So that's something to think about. I think the concern is, as Heidi mentioned earlier, the CDF is concerned about a kind of slippery slope or this conflation. So one has to be careful in light of this instruction if you're an ordained minister in the church. But back to your point, David, I think it's really spot on. The laity can do a lot here. That's so funny, Dan, because as David was asking that question, I just was thinking the same thing. Hey, has anyone thought about the fact that lay people could offer these blessings? I bless my children every night. You don't need to be ordained to do that. I think we'll see how things evolve, right? The workarounds or how much fear will there be among priests? I'm not sure how common it was for priests to do public blessings of LGBT couples anyway, at least here. One thing that concerns me a bit about this question, and of course, we don't know who posed it to the CDF, but it was somehow asked of the CDF, so they uh, chose to answer it, is that it seems to be short-circuiting the synodal process that was happening there in Germany. And I know from the writings of many more traditionalists or conservative Catholics here in the U.S., some people are very concerned about that synodal process there. We have a similar process going on in Australia or has been going on. Another one's about to start in Ireland. And they're very concerned that when you start listening to the people and you have these sort of from ground up kinds of conversations in the church, where things might go. And by bringing the hammer down before the German bishops even were able to finish their process. That's concerning, especially if Pope Francis did sign off on this because he's supposed to be all about synodality. In fact, he's having the synod about synodality coming up. So it raises those kind of technical questions, too. I think that's a really important point. And it's one of these things, too, that reporting you referenced earlier that that we saw from, I think it was American Magazine, about Pope Francis potentially distancing himself. I, I do wonder, I, I don't know that this was as malicious as Vigano with that clerk from Kentucky, the kind of the gotcha sort of thing they were doing. I don't think anyone was trying to put one over on Pope Francis. We have to remember, Pope Francis has the responsibilities analogous to like head of state. There are documents coming across his desk all the time, and he has to trust the various dicasteries and departments that what they're doing is right. So my guess is he's getting a very summary brief. He's not reading all these documents. And he has to sign off on something. And, and in the morning, he gets a stack of papers and his secretary says, OK, here's the thing from the CDF. They want to announce this response. And the Holy Father says, what's this about? Well, we got a question about whether priests can bless same-sex couples in, in a civil union or in same-sex marriage. And they and Pope Francis might say, well, what was their answer? And they said no. And he's like, yep, that's right. OK. But had no idea of the actual content of the document or the tone, which is not at all in keeping with Pope Francis's pastoral approach. So one of the things that comes to my mind is Luke 6:28 where we're told to bless those that curse us. And I'm thinking about that in kind of two ways right now. I'm thinking about that partially in response to the LGBTQ persons who are being told by the church that this is not for them and that they're not wanted in some way and if that's their impression, our Lord has said that these kinds of troubles will come, and that one of the responses is to bless anyway. But I'm also thinking about the whole rhetoric that says that the church can't bless these other people because somehow they're wanting to put forward sin. That, that to me, falls into the logic of Luke 6.28. If someone is doing something that you don't think is the right thing to do, one of the responses that we're told in the Beatitudes is to offer a blessing and to offer that hospitality and to offer that moment of comfort. And I'm thinking about this out loud right now, but one of the things that I hope that we learn to do more is to bless and to welcome, and that we learn to do less is to condemn and to exclude. I, I think that's a really good point, David. But one thing I just want to highlight as we wrap up is the conflation of sin with the person in this case is deeply troubling and unique. I go back to this point about not all sinners and sin in the eyes of church teaching are treated the same. And I think even this language of blessing the sinner or those who curse you or what have you, I understand the kind of pastoral impulse you're talking about, but I would also be wary of using that language because that's the kind of language that I think some in the Vatican, some in the CDF in particular, think they're doing. They think they're offering a kind of tough love in defense of the truth. And it comes across 
not just offensive to modern standards, which is the way some of these right wing folks will dismiss it. But it's offensive to human dignity and value. And I think we can't lose sight of that. This dehumanization, gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender and and other folks are no more sinners than anybody else. And I think that has to be reiterated, and it's not. And if you have this sort of language, this discourse around these questions, then it makes it look like over and over again, it reinforces a stigmatization about the justified Christian view of a homophobic response. And we as Catholics should not support that. And it's sad, it's embarrassing, and I think it's disgraceful. The issue of the sacramentality of marriage and what constitutes illicit or valid marriage, that's a different, that's a theological question. But when it comes to human beings, I just don't have any patience for this. And I'm saddened by it, frankly. Let's let that be our last word on this for now, but I'm sure that we will come back to this in the future. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with Dan Haran and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and issues through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. On March 16th, the city of Atlanta was rocked by a series of shootings that took place across its metro area. The violence took the lives of eight victims as the gunmen attacked a number of Asian-owned businesses. The 21-year-old suspect in the shootings was apprehended and has been charged with eight counts of murder. Though many in the media have called the killings a hate crime, the authorities in Georgia have yet to make an official pronouncement as to whether this will be part of the prosecution of the case. Nevertheless, the horrific killings have touched off a nationwide conversation about the intersecting issues of violence against women, violence against Asian persons, and the violence against those engaged in or even perceived to be engaged in, quote-unquote, sex work. David, you grew up and lived for a number of years in the Atlanta area. What are some of the most important pieces we should be focusing on here? Well, thank you, Heidi. There, There are a lot of pieces. One is that Atlanta is a city that is an inheritor of long-standing segregation and long-standing geographies of segregation. And so when we're talking about Asian-owned businesses, oftentimes these are not interspersed equally throughout the city, but they're clustered in various locations, which means that the shooter had to literally move from neighborhood to neighborhood around the Atlanta area targeting these kinds of businesses and these persons specifically. So that's one piece of this. Another piece of this that has been talked about in some ways with some some dexterity and in other ways very clumsily is the way that religion and particularly a kind of fundamentalist evangelicalism has played into this, the perception of purity culture, the perception of how males should respond to the temptation of women who arouse them sexually in some way. All of that has been in the background here. And there are stereotypes about Asian persons and specifically Asian women in our culture that that are factors here as well. So all of that is put into a pressure cooker of Atlanta history and the pressure cooker of the fact that this is not the first shooting of a minority group that has happened. We have eight years of this at various communities, the Sikh community, the African-American community, like the Jewish community. We see this again and again where a white perpetrator, male, comes into a location and then decides that they can shoot with impunity and then they are handcuffed, given a cheeseburger and a milkshake and walked to the car and then given a kind of careful treatment in this moment where, and somehow we begin to try and explain away what is literally a premeditated mass murder. Now, I'm, I, I, clearly I've got a lot of thoughts and feelings about this, but that's where I'd like to start is that there's not one particular identifier that helps us to unpack this situation, but it is once again a mixture of interconnected identifiers and a mixture of interconnected biases and racisms and bigotries that are factoring in here. But I'm curious what you two think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I I agree with basically everything you've already said, David. I would just also emphasize two things that I've been thinking a lot about. One is, I don't know how anybody... It's it's disturbing to me to see how people come to the defense of folks who have done 
horrendous things. And I don't quite understand that because unless it's deeply rooted in something like systemic racism and white supremacy, even the defenders don't seem to acknowledge that their very actions in defense of the quote unquote logic, what I would call the illogic of this guy's thinking as he presented it to the cops, what that reveals, what that unveils. Because at, at the very core, it's like, are you saying then it's somehow better that somebody take out their own, they project their own struggles or problems on others and then take somebody else's life? That's in this, this the sort of language that's being used to defend against a hate crime allegation or a hate crime indictment. The second thing is, I've been horrified and not surprised, but just the depth of the dismissal by white people of the reality of systemic and structural racism. People are like, well, he said it wasn't about race, therefore it's not a racist act or something like what the hell are you talking about? You know, I almost feel like there's nothing to say about this because it's so patently clear other than to highlight that there is a whole sort of unspoken cycle of justification rooted in a deeply saturated white supremacy that takes the word of a mass murderer as if that somehow justifies things and that race doesn't play a role or that race isn't a factor. And even if that somehow could be proved, it still doesn't take away from the fact that we've lived this last year, especially with a heightened degree of anti-Asian racism in light of the past administration's demonizing of folks of Chinese descent and, and other folks of East Asia in, in light of the pandemic. So I'm just, again, not shocked, but horrified. On the subject of dismissal, I want to raise just another aspect of dismissal, and that is if you go to the newsroom page of the United States Conference on Catholic Bishops, the head story on the newsroom page is still the statement that they made on the inauguration of President Biden. The, the USCCB has made no statement or acknowledgement at all now almost a week later of this horrific event of everything that has happened. There's, at least to my knowledge, I haven't been able to find any way in which the USCCB has acknowledged that there has been a mass murder that has taken place. And I wonder about the kind of responses that we see from our religious leadership right now around this as well. The inability to name this not only as a hate crime, but just the inability to even name this and to acknowledge that it happened is disturbing to me. So I know that some bishops did have some response. I know here in Chicago, Cardinal Supich had a response that I thought was appropriate. I will say, Dan, conflating with all of this is the complexity of racism against Asian Americans. Some of our listeners may not know that I'm a adoptive parent of two children who are Asian, Asian Americans now. And so learning about racism and about racism specifically in the Asian community has been part of my sort of trajectory as a parent. And, you know, what we have operating there is this both at the same time, the model minority issue where some white people or some people in the culture see Asian Americans as not to be lumped in with other people of color because of the way they may have historically fit in or succeeded in certain areas that we consider valuable in our culture. But at the same time, we've seen in this past year, at least, especially under former President Donald Trump and around the coronavirus, which while we think may have originated in China, the naming it of the China flu or using pejorative phrases like Kung flu contributed to an anti-Chinese sentiment that's also part of us being economic and maybe even eventually military rivals as well. So there's a lot of complexity there that I think adds to it, but that but the erasing of the racial component doesn't do anyone any good. And the clearly uh, sexist component as well is equally disturbing because it just goes to show it reminds me of the the murder of the young woman in uh, England as well, which has been in the news that women are not safe. And it's just a reality that is something that I as a woman have lived with my entire life. And it pains me to think it's it might be my daughter's reality as well. It's, again, a perpetuation of what scholars will talk about in terms of toxic masculinity, that this idea that this young man is not responsible for his own actions, for his own behavior, for his own kind of worldview or experience in the world. You see this as well. I highly recommend two books by the philosopher Kate Mann, M-A-N-N-E. The first is called Down Girl, which is what was her first book about the kind of what I would call illogic, we might call the logic of misogyny. And her most recent book is called Entitled 
titled. And in there, she puts together not only the kind of academic, philosophical criticism and theory, but she also brings in some of these new stories to uncover and, and illustrate the way these things play out, particularly the sexism and misogyny in society. And the, the first story she uses in Entitled, the, in the first chapter, I was actually uh, it, present for that experience. This was um, back in 2018 in Utica, New York, my hometown. I was back to run the Boilermaker 15K road race which takes place in the second Sunday of July every year prior to the pandemic. And right before the race was to begin, I was actually at the start line because for the last couple of years, I've been asked to, to lead an ecumenical opening prayer after the national anthem, this sort of thing. And since the 2013 Boston bombings, large races of tens of thousands of people have a lot more security. The FBI is involved, Homeland Security, the National Guard, police, et cetera. And all of a sudden, all these emergency vehicles left the start line and started heading downtown because there was a reported murder, not just a few blocks from the course of the race. And it was this tragic murder of a young woman who actually was uh, the teenage daughter of folks I went to high school with. Very tragic. But the the takeaway here is that it, it looks like at first, oh, this is just a domestic dispute, this kind of thing. But if you start to peel back the layers, you start to see then this projection of the insecurity, the control, the entitlement, the sense of uh, proprietorship over another human being that this young man who who killed his girlfriend projected onto her to justify this. And, and you see the same pattern play out with this Atlanta shooting. It's deeply disturbing. But as you were saying, Heidi, like it's so ingrained in our culture. And I think the thing that I, I have a really hard time with is the lack of willingness to sit with that discomfort, particularly for white men in this context, to say, Maybe there are a lot of factors here. And just because they're not conscious to the, from the perspective of the alleged murderer doesn't mean that they're not actually playing a role in all of this. Well, and some other factors in this as well. So we've talked about some of the religious connections. I've seen some reporting, and I, I haven't been able to track down all the sourcing on this, that says that his particular church has disaffiliated him from membership, which I find interesting. But I'm also curious about the ways in which you talk about entitlement, the ways in which violence becomes an acceptable behavior for white persons in a way that is always narrated differently than it is for anyone else in our society. And I'm thinking specifically about murderous, multiple murderous violence is sometimes seen as, well, we have to look at that through the lens of their background, their history, their experience, whereas all other kind of violence in our society is coded very simply. I'm just I'm thinking about this out loud right now because it, it strikes me that we are coming back to this again and again where we're expecting in some way for these communities to have to explain to us how to understand them rather than, and I'm saying this as a white person, rather than me doing the homework of actually trying to learn about these communities and understanding these communities, trying to get down to the, the kind of deep intersections of experience of these communities that make it so that I, I'm always expecting someone else to do my spade work for me, whether we're talking about my comfort or my knowledge. And so one of these things that this is reminding me of is that I need to be going into exactly the kind of sources that you're talking about, listening to the experiences of these various communities, learning about how these communities have been misjudged, mistreated, mishandled by the justice system. All of these kinds of factors are not on these communities to educate me about, but rather it's on me as a person who has resources and the ability to find these things out to go and to learn about these things and to become more empathetic and to become more involved and to become more of an advocate to use my privilege in that way and not to use this privilege as, well, you just the world has to clean up after my messes. I think there's also something to be said, and you kind of touched on this, David, about who the arbiters, who gets to be the judge of the factors motivating or otherwise in cases like this. And it's largely white women and men who are dismissing the allegation of a racist motivation or that racism plays any role in this. You could have race obviously play a role in the U.S. context in a crime like this even if that isn't in the forefront of the alleged murderer's actions. And it's got me thinking, David, in light of your comments of speaking theologically of the work of a number of Korean and Korean-American theologians. I'm thinking of Dr. Andrew Park in particular, or even a white U.S. male theologian, Kevin Considine, who, who has done a lot of work in this area. And they've sought to retrieve a concept in Korean called Han, which is 
shifts focus, not just in the context of trauma from those who are the perpetrators of violence, but to those who are victims, victim survivors, those who are the receivers on the receiving end. And the way that's oftentimes translated, since the character is very complicated to translate, is in theological terms to talk about focusing on the sinned against. That in our Catholic Christianity, so much of our theology, so much of our morality, so much of our ethics is focused on the one who sins. Are you contrite? Are you aware? Did you go to confession? Did you do your penance? Did you seek reconciliation? Meanwhile, we're not talking about those who have been sinned against and the experience that they carry with them, this deep, resonant hurt called Han. And I think that parallels with what you're saying about where do we get our information? Who do we listen to? We, in this case, you and I are white men in particular, but collectively as a society. And how quick those who are the ones who carry this Han, this weight, this, I don't want to call it a burden, but it's a kind of energy that is not necessarily constructive. It's oftentimes very destructive that results as being a direct victim or victim survivor of such trauma and violence or by association. We can talk about whole community suffering as Asian and Asian American communities are in the wake of these shootings. The only other thing that I'd want to add is when we're talking about this responsibility that we have, we also have a responsibility to name the fact that in Georgia, it was incredibly easy for the perpetrator of this violence to get a hold of a weapon, to move from having the desire to kill people to getting the implement of destruction to kill people. There were no barriers to that in Georgia. From a Catholic perspective, if we want to talk about a culture of life, one of the things that I would love to see the bishops do is to speak out and say, access to weapons that can kill people quickly in the manner that we've seen, that's a life issue. And that if we fail to name that as a life issue, we are falling down on our responsibility to the community in this sense. And we're falling down on our responsibility to actually care for the most vulnerable among us. Yeah. David, that's a great point. And especially we currently have some background check legislation at the national level that made it through the House and is probably not going to make it through the Senate. We ran a opinion piece by one of the leaders from National Pax Christi recently at NCR Online. But I'd like to see a lot more speaking out about that. I read an article that pointed out that it was uh, you more you can more quickly acquire a weapon in Georgia, then you can register to vote. So you can get it on the same day, a weapon, but you can't uh, vote on the same day. And that's a whole nother issue about voting rights and what's happening to that in our country. But bringing up the gun control is really important, David. Well, as we continue to pray for the victims and their families, as we continue to pray for an end to gun violence in our society, we ask for you to join us in prayer. We're going to take a quick break. This is The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Governor Andrew Cuomo, the three-term governor of New York State and eldest son of the three-term former governor, Mario Cuomo, rose to national prominence early in the spring of 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic because of his widely viewed daily pandemic briefings. Seen at the time as a stark contrast to the Trump administration's consistent mishandling of the pandemic response and former President Trump's digressive, self-referential, and often misleading press conferences, Cuomo's direct and matter-of-fact approach was hailed as a symbol of true leadership. But recently, the public political honeymoon Cuomo enjoyed in the national and international spotlight has come to an end. Long rumored to be a relentlessly aggressive and controlling political operative, Cuomo has been described for decades as a bully and a ruthless seeker of political control. The goodwill garnered through his daily briefings appeared, at least for a time, to shield him from broader scrutiny. However, a recent investigation by New York State Attorney General Letitia James, which concluded in January, alleges that the Cuomo administration covered up the real number of nursing home deaths caused by COVID-19 by as much as 50 percent. In February, the FBI and the U.S. attorney in Brooklyn opened an investigation. 
Around the same time that this news broke, another scandal directly involving Cuomo came to the surface. In December 2020, a former aide to the governor alleged that Cuomo sexually harassed her for years, creating a hostile work environment. Other former staff members, and in some cases, strangers who had only brief encounters with the governor, such as at a wedding, have subsequently come forward with similar allegations. At present, there are at least eight women who have alleged sexual harassment or assault. Given that Cuomo was such a symbol of leadership during the early months of the pandemic, that he is famously a Catholic and comes from a well-known Catholic political family, and that there's a lot to unpack here, where should we begin, Dan? Oh, goodness. Where to begin? I have lots of thoughts. I'm sure you two both do as well, and so do our listeners. I, I think one of the things that I've found both frustrating and necessary and difficult to do is on the one hand, see the whole picture of what's going on around Andrew Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, and try to disentangle a lot of related yet distinct things. Because they're related insofar as they center around this individual, as you mentioned, David, who had a reputation of being uh, a real forceful bully. That's the term to use. And that's coming more and more to light in light of these other scandals and controversies and allegations. But it's got me thinking about a couple things. Let me talk first about the bullying and the sexual harassment allegations, because I think these two things go hand in hand dispositionally. One does not have to be a sexual predator or a harasser to be a bully. But a lot of times those who are are also bullies. And it goes back to what we talked about in the last segment about this sense of toxic masculinity and male entitlement. And this idea that Cuomo, you know, it goes all the way back to his father's gubernatorial campaign, where Andrew Cuomo was long understood to have been the mastermind behind a deeply homophobic ad campaign in certain boroughs of New York City that attacked then-Mayor Ed Koch. It's, again, horrible to say, but it's common knowledge at this point. Put up billboards around New York that said, vote for Cuomo, quote, let me say this quote, it's not me. The billboard said, vote for Cuomo, not the homo. And so this was already seen as dirty politics, ad hominem attacks, playing on social stigmas and and prejudices at the time. And it, it reflects, as the New York Times has reported in recent weeks, a kind of scorch the earth political attitude that Cuomo has displayed basically at every turn. We've seen that also in the way that he's threatened legislators in the state and other politicians. Some of these recordings of conversations and threats have surfaced. So that's one thing. And then there are the allegations of sexual harassment and and assault. And that in and of itself is horrifying and egregious. But it also, on the one hand, seems very logical to me that this would all be of a piece. And on the other hand, I also want to look at these two things separately not because it mitigates either one, but because these are two phenomena that raise serious questions for me about how people move in the world, particularly men with power, white men with power in particular. So I don't know, what are, you, what are your two responses? What are you thinking about with all this swirling around? Well, like you, Dan, sometimes it's overwhelming because there's so much going on there. In addition, the whole issue around the underreporting of the deaths in the nursing homes, which was also really problematic in terms of hailing him as some sort of leader during the coronavirus and then to find out about that. What I hear among women who are talking about this is not just that they weren't surprised about Cuomo because like you said, he did have this reputation as a bully and as, uh, and had this personality, aggressive personality, but that they're just not surprised about anyone, you know? So uh, this morning then is the news about how that Rep- Representative Tom Reed, who apparently was maybe going to uh, run against Cuomo, and now he's apologizing for his sexual inappropriateness with someone. And it's it's not that all men are sexual predators, but it's just not that surprising when it comes out, especially about men in power. Like I said I, in the last segment as well, these issues are something that as a woman, I've lived with my entire life and just had hoped maybe we had as a culture had made a little more progress on so that my daughter wouldn't be living with the same reality. David, what's your take on this? Well, I, you all are touching on exactly the thing, and that is that 
Cuomo is not some kind of outlier, that we have an entire culture where winner-take-all politics, gerrymandering, and the creation of political machines, and I'm saying this as a person who's lived for the last decade here in Chicago, where the Chicago and Illinois political machines are infamous, it reinforces a certain type of person who succeeds very well in that kind of environment, and then it makes it almost impossible, even when there are credible allegations, to unseat them. Think about the political machine that surrounded someone like Donald Trump and all the allegations and malfeasance that surrounded him. Like once a person gains power, it's incredibly hard to hold them accountable. The very thing that our system is designed to do, it fails to do. And so from a, both a political effectiveness perspective, but also from a Catholic perspective, from the notion of the common good, this seems to me like a point where Catholics and Catholic teaching can be very useful precisely because we're supposed to think about things like moral standards. We're supposed to think about the kind of moral outcomes to these kinds of behaviors, not just political effectiveness, but rather actual moral and common good effectiveness should be the standards that we use. Unfortunately, as we've been talking about throughout this entire episode today, Catholics oftentimes have substituted the kind of our team is winning kind of standards for these higher standards that we're called to. I think there's a great parallel, too, with the nursing home underreporting this deliberate kind of cover up, as it were, to make the governor and the governor's office in the state of New York look better than it was. Because, again, we don't really have time in the segment to go in the whole backstory. Folks can look this up online. But there was early on, there was a decision made by the governor's office to allow nursing home residents to leave hospitals. And part of it might have been with the best intentions to try to clear up more bed space. But what that ended up doing is that folks who were exposed to or were di diagnosed with COVID-19 were sent back to nursing homes. And then the nursing homes themselves became these hermetically sealed kind of super spreader institutes. You know, what that reminds me of is the, this very deeply entrenched Catholic practice of Bella Figura. It reminds me of the sexual abuse crisis, especially its cover-up in the church, where bishops, those, again, men in power, who would prefer to move things around or predators around in this case to cover up any kind of public reckoning with the reality. That comes to an end at some point, and you see this right now with Cuomo and his administration. So I see parallels there, certainly with the Catholic Church and our experience in the U.S. context. But another thing that, that strikes me, and I'm curious about what you two think about this, one of the things that a lot of GOP folks said over the last four years when Donald Trump was president was he's a bore, he's, he's a misogynist, he's a racist, he's all these things, and ultimately he's a jerk. No one's going to deny that, but he's our jerk. And he's delivering those judges. And he's delivering those judges. Well, I, I, I see a similar thing playing out with somebody like Cuomo. People who tolerate and bend to their will and accommodate and, and do as the bully pleases because, yeah, Andrew Cuomo's a jerk, but he's our jerk. And we want to have a Democrat. You know, he beat Pataki. We don't want to have another Republican governor of New York. Yeah, whatever the excuse may be. And I wonder how we approach that, re that kind of thinking. Is there a way to rethink this? Before you ask that question, Dan, I was going to point out that this is not a partisan issue. So obviously we have examples of men behaving badly in both parties and across uh, the political spectrum. And, and neither party deals with this perfectly either. Although I always think back to the case of Al Franken, who was quickly removed with uh, the encouragement of the higher ups in the Democratic Party, because it seemed like they were going to take the way of handling it that was you know, no tolerance. And we're going to say your time is up here as a representative in Congress. But my concern is if only one party is reacting that way and removing men who are, have evidence of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and the other party, like you said, with Donald Trump, that's okay. We're just going to uh, put up with it because uh, we get what we want politically out of him. Then we're going to have this imbalance. That said, I think that we need to have consequences for men who act this way. Otherwise, they will continue to act that way. And we will continue to have only those kinds of people representing us in government. And that's, I just don't think that's best for the country either. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought up Al Franken because a lot of people have pointed to that was 
a large number of people would agree that was a mistake on the part of the Democratic Party, as the reporting of Jane Mayer from The New Yorker has subsequently revealed that that was rushed. There, there were questions that if there was a due process of an ethical investigation would very likely have cleared him of some of the kind of allegations that were being presented, that this was a baby out with the bathwater sort of thing. But it's to your point, Heidi, which is the leadership in the Democratic Party that time, right in the moment of the Me Too movement reaching its peak in, an, in a moment where Donald Trump is a president, all this kind of stuff, they felt like they had to be pure about this, as it were, a pure approach. I think as people have raised, is is this Cuomo thing, is this a is this Al Franken 2.0? And I would say it's not. I would say it's not for a couple of reasons. And you saw that with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who was the leading voice to have her colleague, Senator Franken, removed or encourage him to step down. She was notably quiet for several months, actually, about this. And I think that was lesson learned, right? When the reporting came out about Franken and saw the damage that was done, there needed to be more time. And that's true with Senator Schumer, the, the Senate Majority Leader, and, and the second senator from New York, the, the senior set senator from New York. And we see it with a number of other Democratic leaders across New York State and, and nationally. And why I think it's different is because the time has proven out that actually there are a lot of other things going on. And this brings me back to the bully question, which is even if there weren't the sexual harassment allegations and even if there weren't the nursing home cover up, the underreporting and so forth of these deaths from COVID-19, what does it mean that people advance and are enabled who have this kind of bullying, destructive, adversarial, scorched earth sort of approach. I, I, I want to focus on that because it goes back, David, you're talking about like the common good. I'm like, we also, the Catholic theology, we also have this tradition that goes back to Augustine called ex opere operato. It's when it comes to sa the sacramental validity of, of the ministry in the church, it's not the individual merit. It's not my sinlessness as Father Dan when I baptize that makes the baptism valid because it's God's action working through me. So God can work even through imperfect, sinful vessels, we might say, or human beings as we all are. So there's that sort of thing, which I think justifies in a secular political context what you were saying, Heidi, about it's a nonpartisan thing. It's on both sides. But I also want to say there's no grounds to justify being such a jerk, being such a bully, being such a I don't want to use harder language on our family program here, the Francis effect, but listeners can fill in the blanks. I don't know. I, I get really impatient with that because I don't think it's necessary. You know, everybody loses their cool. Everybody, you know, makes mistakes here and there. But the, there's a consistent pattern in Governor Cuomo's record that is not even an open secret. It's just common knowledge. And it raises questions. Why do we allow this to continue? Why do we support this? Well, and we can find parallels not only with someone like Andrew Cuomo, but here in Illinois with a character like Michael Madigan, who recently stepped down as longtime head of the Democratic Party and longtime sort of core functionary of the political machine. And it's a similar kind of set of tactics. You hear stories about Michael Madigan, and that is if you cross Madigan, he will defund or will block the funding for whatever interest you have for years to come. Like this kind of uh, practice of just shutting cutting people out, not being responsive to the actual needs of the community, but rather being responsive to the political interests of a certain small subset of the party. And this is the bigger picture that I'm trying to say, is that we see this not just in New York, we see this not just in Illinois, but this is the way that American politics is structured right now. And it's a problem that is playing out across the nation. We're seeing these sort of explosions of them with around some key figures, but there's a deeper problem here that we need to be continually lifting up and thinking about. Yeah, and I would just add that even if you're not holding a lot of political power like some of the people we're talking about, we can all think about how we use power in our own relationships and our own lives. So I think about this a lot as a manager and sometimes in an industry that where there's a lot of fast-making decisions that need to be done and a lot of stress and a lot of chop-chop, let's get things done. But you need to think about, too, how you treat people. This idea that he wore the label, Cuomo wore the label of being aggressive in some sort of positive way. I think we can be effective in our jobs and in our relationships and still treat people with respect. And it can just start in everyday relationships and go all the way to the top. 
Heidi, I think that's a great note to end on. And so for listeners, if you are, if you're feeling a call to politics, we are praying for you and we are praying that you will be the leaven in this kind of horrible loaf that we're talking about today. Please help us and help our culture to do better. We're very thankful that you have chosen to spend the last few minutes with us and we're grateful for your time. Please know that you're in our prayers. Heidi and Dan, it's great to be with you. Uh, You're in my prayers as well, and I ask for your prayers for me. Thanks for being part of the Francis Effect today. Igualmente. Likewise, and have a great week, everyone. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at various locations around the Chicago area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can also follow us on Twitter at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. If you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have more than seven seasons worth of episodes going back all for free for your listening pleasure. Please go check them out. And thank you for listening. Father Dan, Heidi, and I will be back in a couple of weeks. We look forward to being with you.